Welcome back to the Sleep for Performance podcast. Today I am joined by Aaron Bazzini. Bazzina. Is that I pronounce I never pronounce names right, Aaron. It's, no, no, no. Bazzina's good. Bazzina's good, is it? Bazzina. So, yeah. yeah. So, Aaron, you join us today from the great city of Newcastle. Is that right? Yeah, the University of Newcastle. It's uh, currently raining here, but it's a welcome change from the heat we've been having. Really? Raining? Yeah. Now, some people are probably listening to this going, you don't sound like you're from Newcastle, but we're not talking about Newcastle, England. We're talking about Newcastle, Australia. That's right, yeah. A bit of a difference. <laughs> <laughs> a slight difference. But not the uh, accent. Yeah. <laughs> Although two, uh, two, two, pe- some people might say two rough industrial towns anyway. So yeah, <laughs> my, my, my kind of town. Yeah. <laughs> I, I've been over to Newcastle quite a bit because when I worked, did a lot of work in mining, um, I used to go into the Hunter Valley quite a bit. And obviously yeah. you, would, you would stay in Newcastle because it was hard to get accommodation in the Hunter Valley sometimes. Yeah. Or you would just, you know, kind of come out of Hunter and stay in Newcastle and drive down to Sydney. So... Yeah, that's it. Yeah. For those who don't know, it's the biggest coal port in the world. So it's uh, very, mm. very big in terms of the coal mining and the, the shipping over to, to the different countries. Yeah, it's quite an interesting region around there because, you know, like an hour or so inland, you've got the Hunter Valley, beautiful wine country, but then you'll drive around the corner and you'll see like a massive drag line in a corner. <laughs> <and you> just... <laughs> yeah, well, this, this big open cut. <laughs> uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's quite bizarre, isn't it? Yeah, well, you're right. We've got the sea and then we've got all, it's become very hipster now in Newcastle. Has it? Yeah, yeah. And it's quite bohemian. Um, it's gentrified <laughs> a lot. But then, um, as you said, when you start heading out towards the Hunter Valley and then again, a bit further into the, the upper and lower um, Hunter area, you have all the mine sites and the wineries. So it's a great mix. Yeah. And then there was um, um, aluminium smelters there as well. Yeah, there's, we've got a lot of yeah. power stations yeah. and yeah, everything. Yeah, it's quite, quite an interest. But I'm, I'm surprised it's become hipster. Yeah, no, the, the town itself, I think it has to do with the university because okay. the, the, the government's um, invested a lot of money into the university. And so now we have a lot of the hipsters in, in town and it's quite beautiful um, what they're doing to the town along Honeysuckle and whatnot. So, yeah, here we go. I'm a, the PR for the Newcastle. I'm getting paid by the mayor. <laughs> Welcome to Tourism Newcastle with Aaron Bazzini and Ian Dunicum. That's it. <laughs> Aaron, tell me a little bit about what we can do in Newcastle this weekend if we're bored. I know. So we're sitting on the Sydney weekend soon, won't we? <laughs> You're only two hours north of Sydney anyway, so it's not, it's, it's, it's not too far. It's actually not a bad town when you think about because prices would be lower. If you wanted to go into Sydney to shop or see a sporting event, you're in there in a couple of hours. So yeah, yeah. Has, I, has look, I, I made the trip down to the, the city CBD only a couple of nights ago to see a, like a string quartet of a, a Japanese composer. And we were there and back in a day. So, or yeah. one evening. So it's quite yeah. nice convenient. So very good. Yeah. So, so Aaron, did you, did you grow up in Newcastle? Are you from there originally? Um, I'm from the central coast, which is just a, an hour down South um, in between Newcastle and Sydney. But then during uh, the start of university, when I started my undergraduate degree, I uh, moved up to, to Newcastle just to be closer to the university because at the time, the, the infrastructure wasn't so good to commute and I didn't want to yeah. drive. So it just made sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so um, when you grew up um, on the central coast, were you a bit of a, a surfer, a water, a water baby, like, uh, <laughs> or were you more into land-based sports? Oh, look, um, yeah, I, I liked playing soccer, football, um, all different types of games like that. We would go to the beach regularly and I'd bodyboard a bit, but it was never a surfer per se. But yeah, I do enjoy the beach like everyone yeah. on the coast. Yeah, it's quite nice. I like I like New South Wales. It's, it's it's a nice place. I actually got married in New South Wales up in Lennox Head, which would be a good few hours north of you. Yeah. But uh, my wife is from outside Melbourne originally, but we got married in Lennox Head because she used to live there for a number of years. She went to um, 
uh, Southern Cross University. Yeah, okay. Back in the late nineties. So yeah, probably and, when probably when you were in high school or early. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the 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 mid north coast on the eastern side is just all beautiful. Um, yeah. If you travel from up near uh, Byron all the way down to Marimbula on that side, just the whole coastline is littered with beautiful towns and the each got different unique features. So I do yeah. enjoy traveling up and down the coast. Getting more and more expensive now since coronavirus. People get out of the city and yeah, well, that's it. Places. You can't get anything anymore, can you? It's yeah. just ridiculous. That's it. But if you're an academic, you make millions, so you can. Yeah, thank, like. yeah, that's why we do a PhD. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember I was doing a um, a master's at UNSW in mine engineering, and one of the guys goes to me, "Oh, here comes the professor, whatever his name was. You probably got all these Maserati." And I looked at him and went, "How much do you think academics make? Oh, they, he'd be on like three quarters of a million easily." I was like, man, you have no idea. I said, as a, as a mine supervisor, you'd be making like probably about 50 grand more than he would be. Like academic yeah. salaries are shit. Yeah. And I um I had a similar experience when I was doing a talk at a mine site and, and I was just talking about my PhD and what I want to do after. And, and one of them made a comment and he's like, and that's when you start getting paid, right? After your PhD, you be earning a lot of money. And I just laughed and I said, you make more money than me. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was just an open cut mine driving a truck. And I was like, you make so much more than me. <laughs> Yeah, especially some postdocs in America are on the poverty line. Like, <laughs> oh my goodness, it's like horror stories over yeah. there. It's not as bad, unfortunately. Yeah, well, we 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 won't cry about academia to people because people are going, "What are you crying about?" Um, that's that's one of the reasons why I didn't go into academia. Um, anyway, but that's another story. So, Aaron, um, tell tell us a little bit about your your journey to um to the PhD. What did you study in under, undergrad, and what led you to your uh, PhD work? Well, I, I'm originally a dietitian, so I studied nutrition and dietetics in my undergrad. Um, and as part of becoming a dietitian, we do a, a year's worth of placements in hospitals and various community settings just to, to get that experience underneath your belt. And I, I noticed in my last year when I was working in a hospital, I was very fortunate because I got to work in a, um, a rural hospital out in Tamworth. And for those who don't know, it's where the Golden Tire is and the Country Music Festival um, and I got a lot, lot of experience. And one thing I noticed was that a lot of people were getting admitted to hospital that really could have been prevented from going there if, if they were armed at an earlier stage with the preventative tools to help manage their lifestyle a bit better. Um, and with that kind of in mind, I, I went and chatted with a, a researcher here at the university about exploring workplace wellness um, in the mining industry. And that's that's really what led me here, just wanting to to make programs that can equip individuals with the, the right skills and knowledge so they can live a healthy, happy life. So that's how I, I got into research. I had no idea that I would end up doing a PhD um, when I was actually studying, but yeah, it's, it's a great journey to, to be on. And I truly love this space. And what made you, um, I suppose maybe before I ask this question is what made you study dietetics nutrition? What was your interest in that? What, why did you pick that? Um, that's funny. I had no idea what to study in high school and I really liked doing food technology and I was close with my food technology teacher. Her name was Mrs. McDonald. And she just said to me one day, should, should be a dietitian. Um, and so I, uh, I put that as my number one subject in high school and I got it with my ATAR and, and that's what led me here. So I don't have a, like a burning passion or like, yeah, Oh, yeah, at yeah. a young age, I saw a dietitian and they, <laughs> they really inspired me. I was just like, oh, I don't know what to do. So I'll just do this. And I guess I always enjoyed health and fitness. Um, and yeah, the, the power of nutrition. So yeah, I, I do enjoy it. I'm more, I'm more operating in a lifestyle space now than just purely nutrition. Cause I, I think holistically wellness is like yeah. a big wheel, but yeah, I still enjoy 
the the nutrition side of dietetics. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons why I invited Aaron on today, which we'll we'll kind of get into as we as we progress along with this conversation. But uh, as um, as many people have heard me speak about in this podcast or in some of my other work, we we do look at these other what you're saying there are lifestyle factors because you have to look at you know these things in in a holistic fashion like sleep, mental health, um, anthropometric data, lifestyle factors, exercise, fitness. The, these all these things kind of encompass this overall kind of wheel or um, framework of of wellness. And yeah, and if you look at one in isolation, you run the risk of not. Of, of negatively affecting another one if you don't optimize for them all at the same time. So I think you have to have, I think it's fair to say you have to have some working knowledge in these other areas. Yep. Um, and I, I've actually done some research on the crossing over to the diet nutrition area. So myself and a guy called Reed Real, who's been on the podcast, who works for UFC Shanghai, he leads their um, uh, dietetics and nutrition uh, component at the UFC. And he kind of specializes in in weight cutting, which oh, is, wow. okay. happens in combat sports. Yeah. And so myself and Ray have done two papers on that one, looking at sleep during the simulated weight cutting process. And then, um, Reed was looking at the effects of a low residue diet and water loading on weight cutting as well. And so we ran that wow. at the AIS back in, it must be 2015, 16. We ran those um, studies and those two papers were published. And then Reed went on to work at Gatorade and then in Florida, and then went on to work for UFC at Shanghai. And currently myself and Reed and a guy called Andy Galpin, who's been on Joe Rogan's podcast, we currently have a study out and we have 500 participants have partaken in the last week. So then you got released about a week ago um, and we're looking at sleep and nutrition practices in combat sports. And so we're looking wow. at all sorts of combat sports from people doing just recreational karate and so on, which I'll put a link into the show notes so people can do that free assessment if they wish um, to get a free report like within half an hour so that's just you know i cross over a lot into that space because i think they go hand in hand mm. um and so there is a lot of relationship with this and as we will talk today there's a lot of relationship in mining and other sports as well so yeah yeah it's um there, there is a lot of crossover i think in these fields and that's why i wanted to have you on to talk about some of this work yeah so aaron why did you pick mining what what stuck out to you from a because for someone who kind of grew up on the beach and did food technology, it's not like, oh, I'll just jump into mining. Like, wow, how, how did yeah. you get to that? Look, um, it's it's funny. I, I started working for the Center for Resources, Health and Safety at the university. Um, and as the name implies, we we do a lot of work with, with the mining industry and the resource sector more broadly around health and safety. But I think the the mining industry is a really interesting test bed because the the challenges and the the infrastructure is almost if it works in mining it really should work anywhere um, in terms of looking how nutrition or, or lifestyle interventions can operate because uh, male dominated uh, really remote which is another huge mm. challenge in, in delivering like more traditional workplace wellness um, as well as shift work and all of the, these different practices. So if you can kind of crack a, a, a wellness program that's effective in, in a mining setting, then, then it really can have a lot of uh, beneficial effects in, in different settings. So that's, it was almost like a, a challenge <laughs> that I wanted to take up. Um, and it's been great. I, I, I love the, the work and it's, it's just fascinating, especially, I think, uh, look, I'm going to digress here a little bit, but maybe people don't fully realize that when you go underground in a mine, um, you know, you have to bring all your food and all your materials down there and you don't really have a, a fridge. Um, you, you know, you're contending with rats that are going to eat your food. So 
there's there's all these little challenges that mm. are just really interesting and, and how you um how you prescribe a, a nutritious and balanced diet in those kinds of conditions yeah and then you have to obviously contend with the with the shift work uh, yes. operations which obviously affects leptin and ghrelin yes and um, which then you know we know when hunger people, hunger yeah appetite regulating when people are working at nighttime they're basically craving more like fatty sugary Shit eater food, shit eater foods is the group yes, I call it. That's right. And so if anybody's worked night shift, they would have had this, you know, craving like hot chips at two or three o'clock in the morning or a pie or whatever. And you're you're having these things to promote alertness or overconsumption of caffeine. Yeah. Um, and you know, regardless of what people think, daytime sleep is never as restorative as nighttime sleep. And so mm. people are constantly chasing their tail. And so we've seen like in estimates and from other research that probably shift workers can gain like five kilos compared to compared to a day shift worker in a, in the course of a year, which is approximately like about 12 pounds yeah. um, of body weight. So yeah. Then and that body weight obviously leads out to obesity and more problems, which gets into your category then. Yeah. And look, there's a lot of research in nurses in particular around um, snacking consumption and, yeah. and, and habits um, in terms of their shift cycles. And you're right. You hit the nail on the head there with um, the, the fact that they do eat a lot more high calorie, poor nutrient dense food. So um, and, and look, you, you said it there as well, that the, the increased weight and the, the effects on things like obstructive sleep apnea, I know that you've done a lot of research that's, that's looked at this as well. Yeah. Yeah. Alan Flanagan in, I think he's at the it might be university of Surrey. He works with Sigma nutrition. I don't know if you follow Sigma nutrition, Danny. No, I'll have to. It's a very good podcast. Sigma nutrition. He's got a massive following. I'd highly recommend it to anybody who's interested in dietetics and nutrition. Uh, Danny Lennon, um, an Irish guy, and I'm not spooked him because he's Irish. I've only <laughs> known Danny for about four or five years. Really nice guy, great podcast. Has Alan Flanagan on there as well sometimes. They do work around this. And Alan is, I think, about he might be finished his PhD, but he was looking at some of these things um, in nurses. And then Charlotte Gupta down at Central Queensland University has done some work on snacking behaviors of shift workers as well. So, so yeah. Mm. Anyway, Aaron, let's jump into this paper because this is this is the paper that kind of. Um, you know, was the hook for me to get you onto the podcast, which was a scoping review called Workplace Wellness Programs Targeting Weight Outcomes in Men. So can you give us a little bit of overview of this project and, and what you found? Yeah, so I just wanted to scope the literature in terms of what's been done to look at well, like workplace wellness programs that target the weight outcomes specifically in men. Uh, why we chose men is because there are a lot of biological and gender differences between males and females. Uh, not only in the chemistry and the biology, but also the attitudes and how they approach health more specifically. So we really did want to, to knuckle down on men um, just to see whether there's th these programs are effective in them. So we, we scoped the literature. I think it was within the last 12 years. We, we focused more on contemporary literature. Uh, and this has to do with the fact that the World Health Organization in 2010 released a, a global framework for workplace wellness. Um, so we, we use that time as a bit of a cutoff because we see it as a, as a transformative period for, for workplace wellness going forward in terms of having structure and how they implement and evaluate programs. Um, and then that's, that's why we, we did the review, just to, to have a baseline knowledge of, of what programs have been done and, and what areas need to be, to be investigated further. Excellent. And can you tell us what you found in, in this scope and review so far? Yeah, yeah. So the scoping review was really interesting. Um, I think the the three major uh, highlighted areas, which which were unearthed in a sense, was around the lack of follow up in particular with programs. So 
I, in, re, in research sense, these were all one-off programs, but what, what happened was that because these programs weren't continuous, those studies who had a follow-up period, so those studies who went back and looked at um, and reassessed the participants after the end of the study, found that they, they yo-yoed weight. And, and maybe those mm -hmm. who don't know in dietetics, weight yo-yoing or weight cycling is, um, is where you, you lose weight as a part of a, a diet for say, or an exercise routine. And then you regain that weight um, sometimes even more back than what you lost. And, and why this is quite detrimental to human health is that when we, we have these, these like constant weight cycling, you can um, actually decrease your, your muscle mass. Um, and then what you regain is typically metabolic unactive mass. So fat mass, um, and it can contribute to other health, um, problems like diabetes or cardiovascular disease. So, um, the weight cycling was really prominent in those who had follow-up components in their interventions. Uh, another aspect was related to the type of intervention. So multi-component versus single component programs. Those who look at nutrition in isolation, those who look at physical activity in isolation, and those who are multi-component and combine the two together to, yeah. to generate their, their outcome. And we found that those who were multi-component in their design were more effective or were more efficacious, sorry, in their, in their results around weight outcomes. So wellness programs should incorporate both physical activity and nutrition uh, aspects in order to generate the best outcomes. And I guess lastly, the, another big point was around the, the type of intervention. So in workplace wellness, uh, we can think of intervention intensity as almost like a scale whereby at the very bottom of the scale, um, you might have a passive intervention, which might be things like environmental prompts around healthy eating, um, modifying policies in an environment that don't require, say, an outsider coming in and actually doing something with the workers. But then as the intensity goes up, we found that the results were just better. So um, it did put a bit of a dampener on the programs that were very passive in their application and really highlights that you do need to invest a bit of time and energy into these workplace wellness programs if you're going to see some outcomes. So when you say intensity, what, what do you mean by intensity there, Aaron? Is well, like over time or the actual requirements on the individual? No, so yeah, it's a bit of both. It could be that um, when, I'm, when I'm referring to intensity, I'm talking about the amount of time and energy that needs to be invested into the program. So yeah. say, for instance, putting up a poster around the workplace, encouraging people to eat more fruit and vegetables, or say uh, a poster that encouraging people to take the stairs, it's a, it's a very not intense intervention, doesn't really require much effort. Mm. Um, and as such, the, the results that it yields are also not as productive as those that might come in and, and have an external person maybe training people around motivational interviewing or around um, goal setting. So having more one-on-one -on -one counseling with individuals around their yeah. wellness journey. So that's what I'm referring to when I say that the intervention intensity um, is dependent on the results, essentially. That's very interesting. This morning, I just um, finalized an article for the uh, American I think it's the American Association of Sleep Technologists. And I basically spoke about this in terms of athletic sleep in the same manner. We're too focused on the group thing and passively looking at group data. What we need, where we need to move to is more individualization. That's what I've been doing in some of my work over the last couple of years is 
whilst we look at group data, we need to meet one-on-one -on -one with athletes yep. and do uh, specific interventions within the scope of the overall umbrella, if you want to call it that, but we yep. need to be able to do targeted interventions and increase that personalization and to kind of use your terminology and intensity with them to mm. develop personalized individual plans um, that's going to help them reach their goals and also give them a time to basically explore the opportunities for improvement individually as opposed to just looking at a poster on a wall or take the stairs or eat an yeah. apple. I think that's that's really key because diet nutrition like sleep is so personalized. You've got all sorts of other issues with people. Some people, you know, will be very carb dependent. Others won't be. Some people will like meat, others won't. So prescribing yeah. a one diet to suit all or intermittent fastness isn't going to work. But for other people, it could be brilliant. Uh, low fiber diets or there's a whole host of different things depending yeah. on each person's um, pre-existing factors, I suppose. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, I, I agree. And especially in athletes, um, I think it goes up to another level, but in more population-based nutrition, yeah, the, having some more specific outcomes that an individual can follow tends to be more av advantageous. In your scope and review, Aaron, what was surprising was that the majority of the, the wellness programs that you found that you included like 72% of them were in America and Europe. So can you talk to a little bit about maybe why they're happening predominantly more in America and Europe and, and why not outside? And if, if, if it wasn't explicitly stated, happy for you to spe speculate on it as well. Yeah. Look, um, it wasn't specifically stated, but I can speculate on it. And I think it has to do with just the, the healthcare system in America. So the corporate wellness is just a huge field um, with the American health system because of the way that the health insurance is tied yeah. to the to the workplace. So there's a lot more investment um, and research around programs which can improve the effectiveness of workplace wellness, which then in, reduces the premiums for insurances, which yeah. saves saves money. So I think that's why I think proportionally as well, what was interesting was a lot of uh, studies coming out of Japan as well. Um, and, and I think that lends itself to the corporate culture around um, health that they have over there and, and investing in things like productivity. So um, a lot of the studies in, in those countries like Japan, for instance, were around productivity and how can we increase productivity through, um, through the health interventions in workplaces, whereas in America and, and, and more broadly Europe, they were just more about um, decreasing cardiovascular outcomes or weight reduction yeah. because of the the stress that it has on the the health insurance and and the, the bottom dollar for these businesses yeah i i, I had a feeling you're going to say that because from my experience working in the in the us on projects or dealing with businesses there it's been basically the in, the insurance company will go you've got this level of risk because you have you know 80 percent of people in the obese bracket the we did a vo2 max step test they're all basically going to have a heart attack type of thing they're all in this <laughs> they're all in this this age group therefore we're putting up your premiums by five hundred thousand. yes so then companies will basically do things like they'll offer cash incentives for people to get into bmi ranges or vo2 max levels um you know and offer like incentives to go to the gym or whatever or maybe like a thousand dollars cash to buy a bicycle whatever it might be because what they spend on that They'll actually save more on the um, insurance programs, yep. which, which, which I often think to myself, can, can that be achieved in other countries like here in Australia? Can, is there is there a case for that here where we can actually show a return on investment by improving people's health and longevity, regardless of productivity and have a financial outcome? Is that possible here in Australia as well? Well, I think it depends on 
the health system and and which direction we're kind of taking. I think, as you notice, there's a lot of money to be made um, with improving health and and as well as early prevention. But mm. it, it almost seems like we, at least in Australia, we wait until people fall off the cliff before we we try and help them. So. I think it, there's a, a lot of value to be made in, in um, preventative medicine and incentivizing workplaces, but I think it has to start with the, the government making that incentivized. And uh, I don't know, my health insurance seems to go up every year. So maybe we're, we're moving towards that or I think in Australia, particularly uh, it's more of a work health and safety issue that will lead the way for corporate wellness. And I don't know, you probably deal a lot with work health and safety in terms of the the fatigue management which yeah. is very big in australia but the the corporate responsibility around workplace wellness and, and where that really rests because i think too often we do kind of but like go in with the fact that oh but return on investment so important um and this is how we're really only going to generate um the the movement of, of lifestyle medicine in the workplace in australia but i think for a lot of businesses it really should start with an ethical consideration of what's just right for for the workplace and i think the the ethics of a business um and ethics in general has always been about harm mitigation and if we go back to socrates to to peter singer uh these great philosophers that it's always been the ethical consideration of of the individual and the harm that we do to them and i guess in the last what 20 30 years we've seen businesses really start to come under the microscope in terms of the the practices and the morality of, of business dealing so i think like enron tyco all of these great big scandals back in in the early 2000s and lost a lot of people money and and those kinds of ethical considerations but now in in 2022 and especially in a covid environment the ethical considerations around what kind of product or what kind of environment am I providing for my employees and and is it one that's conducive to to living a healthy happy life so I think ethically businesses have a a position that they need to be accountable for around whether or not they're providing a um, a physically no no, I say physically I don't mean in terms of like harm mitigation or chemical handling or anything like that but a, a physical environment that's conducive to to being a healthy weight or to living a healthy life. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, we're go- I'm going to jump back here to, we're going to segue into this other paper that you wrote last year, which is one of your uh, original research articles on um, health and wellness in the Australian coal mining industry. Yes. But, be- but before we before we segue into that, um, people might say, that's all well and good, Aaron. And you're a young guy, you're enthusiastic, you're doing lots of research and we applaud you, but you're wasting your time. And they'll say, someone that's a bit more cynical, maybe in their 40s, late 40s, 50s, 60s, will go, I've seen all this stuff come in over the last 20 or 30 years. But every time I pick up a paper, or I look at health stuff. I see I see statements like that's in your abstract here. Overweight and obesity has reached pandemic levels with two thirds of Australian Australians being classified as overweight or obese. So all these programs obviously aren't doing anything because now we're at 60%, 67% obesity and overweight levels. So I think you're wasting your time there because it's just getting higher and higher and higher and nobody really cares about it. No one's doing anything about it. Now that's a bit of a, a, a kind of a, 
aggressive inflammatory statement. Oh. But, but, but what would you, what would you, you've probably got that before, but what would you say? That sounds like something someone says to me on a mind side. No. Yeah, because I, 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 I know, I know what I say to people. <laughs> but I, won't, I won't repeat it here. <laughs> Actually, I will fucking run. <laughs> look, I, at least I look at those kinds of things and I think it's, um, it actually just highlights that what we're currently doing just isn't working. And yeah. um, we do need to explore different avenues of how we disseminate health promotion. So whether it be that we do need to start really spending more money on, um, on different avenues for, and different settings for that. And I think workplaces are uniquely positioned more than any other setting um, purely because we, we do spend so much time at work. What one third of our waking lives are at yeah. work. Workplaces especially offer the the infrastructure and reach to large groups of individuals who otherwise wouldn't be able to engage in health promotion. So, yeah, and I, I think advantageously it is for a business to invest in it. When you talk about things like return on investment in productivity, absenteeism, um, pre absenteeism as well. So, yeah, I think um, you know the author George Orwell. Yes. Yeah, so George Orwell, um, who wrote fiction and nonfiction, and probably some of his fiction was more like nonfiction than it was fiction. But anyway, uh, George Orwell wrote a book called The Road to Wigan Pair, which is quite interesting because it was written before World War II. And it was basically, um, it's, a it's, a, it's a nonfiction book where he travels around coal mining operations, basically, and, and working class areas of, of the UK. And then in the second half of the book, and he makes some observations in the first half, in the second half of the book, he then kind of, speculates or highlights where this is all going and sort of pre-World War II and what the future is going to be like. And he said after being down in coal mines, uh, something to the effect of, and I'm paraphrasing here, that the, the healthy, lean, supple, strong underground miner will no longer be this in the future. I fear that in the future, the miner will be overweight, sluggish and lethargic and will be working in an automated environment. Now, if you work in mining today, that's how most of mining is going. People do very little physical activity in mining. There is some roles like drill and blast, for example, or there is, um, you know, people in, in those areas that, that do some physical activity. But the old days of down a mine shaft, which are shirked off with a pickaxe, that's all gone. A lot of these jobs are highly automated. Not to say that they aren't hard, but a lot of that physical activity has been taken out where people will be getting that activity during the day. Yeah. So it's interesting that Orwell talks about this because this seems to be now the new trend in, in mining companies and oil and gas where people are going to more highly automated roles where they're working 12 hours, but the 12 hours is very sedentary in a control room, looking at a lot of screens and having to be more mentally active than physically active. And therefore we've reduced the activity, which I think is leading to, <clears throat> excuse me, leading to the obesity levels, which is probably in conjunction with high caloric food um, advertising um cultural norms as well because it's culturally normal just to be overweight these days yeah um, and so on so um do you think that all those factors are playing into what's happening as well yeah look in any industry it's not just just mining we we now are more sedentary than ever aren't we and back forty thousand years ago we were hunter gatherers and now we're in a post-industrial era we just we sit here we sit behind the wheel of a vehicle we sit you know when we're at work and then we come home and sit so uh, the sanitary nature of work and how that's that's happening is correct. I think the food system as well has a lot to answer for. Um, you can't pick up any packaged food without it just being ladled with trans fats and sugar. So mm. unless you're cooking your own food, you really don't know what's in it. So all of these factors can contribute to overweight and obesity and how it is more normal to be overweight or obese than a healthy weight. 
Yeah, now we see the other thing I read recently was, um, I can't remember the exact number, I should have wrote it down, but it was something like three to four kilometers. People are walking three to four kilometers less than in the 1970s in the Western world. So that incidental movement is down. And we're talking about, like I said, the caloric food, the high calorie food. Um, that's another issue as well, less sleep, um, which obviously then leads to us being more tired during the day. And so with all of these factors, um, they're all kind of playing in to this rise in these obesity levels. So mm. it's all of these different things that are happening. So I find it really interesting. It's probably got worse from COVID. I know it's been varying data on it, but lots of people have even been saying, um, from some of the people I've worked with, talks I've given, they're sitting at home, not getting outside, incidental sunlight exposure, which affects mental health. Even just walking to the train station, getting the train to work, walking around the office, maybe going out for a coffee, taking a walk around the park for lunch, whatever it might be, all of that has stopped because they're at home trying to work, look after kids and so on. And then they get to the end of the day and it's like, oh shit, I just need a drink. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it's it's that kind of whole lifestyle, what you said as well, that needs to be looked at. Yeah, and I think I wear my activity tracker um, when I'm working uh, all the time, really. And just the difference when I'm at home working uh, and then when I go to the office, it's... I just get no steps in. Yeah, and yeah. so I'm like a like a caged dog. I gotta get out and go for a run at the end of the day because I just feel antsy. So it, it can be a bit like that. And I know I'm in a, a unique position where I can I don't have the responsibilities of children or anything like yeah. that. I have to go pick up after work. So I can go do that exercise. But yeah, incidental is really important. Um, and I don't really feel like people are meeting their their physical activity guidelines nowadays. Yeah. So Aaron, this, this paper that helped in wellness in the Australian coal mine industry, can you give us a little bit of an overview on the methodology here that you used and what you found? Because this, this was very interesting. I, I really enjoyed this paper. Yeah, so this was um, part of a, a broader research project that we were looking at um, in terms of reshape, it's called. And this is around a, a healthy workplace framework, which looks to embed wellness into the organizational policies and practices of, of an organization. Uh, and this was just a, a cross-section of three different mine sites, uh, undercut and open ground, <clears throat> under, under, open cut and underground, sorry, across, uh, across New South Wales. And we looked at the, the data and in particular, we did some, some regression and multilinear regression. Um, and we found things like shift work um, and its association with overweight and obesity, um, as well as lots of things around um, just poor nutrition outcomes within this organization. Uh, I can't remember the exact number. I think it was maybe like 78 or 81% overweight or obese, which is um, very typical of, of this industry. But um, I have to add the caveat that, yeah, what, 63% of adult Australians are overweight or obese. Um, so it was, it was 80%. I'm just looking at the data yeah. here. It yeah. Says, 80%. Um, it was 49. Um, 40.9% were overweight. So it was yeah. 41%. Yeah. And obese was 39%. But that's, 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 that's really high. That is yeah. Massive. Yeah. Well, four out of five uh, coal miners are overweight or obese. And this is because it's a, a male dominated industry as well. Um, and men tend to, at least in Australia, be more overweight or obese compared to women, um, as well as just the, the demographics of, of those in these sites. So it is quite astonishing, which makes you realize why research is needed in this area. So how, how did you collect this data? Was it self-reported through an app? Through yeah, a, so through this was, was self-reported um, through paper-based surveys. So 
um, it can be hard to, to get electronic data from these sites just because of the way that they're not allowed to have their phones or yeah. technology. So these were all paper-based surveys, self-reported. Um, and yeah, four out of five, which has been echoed in a lot of other research in this space. Now you found here, one thing I'd like to highlight here is that the number of people you had, 949 people. Yeah. That is a massive amount of people to have in a study like this. So yep. whilst the limitation might be self-reported and recalled, the fact that you had so many people really strengthens this study, um, which is really interesting. The, the other thing you found here was that there was a negative effect with BMI and working. So you basically, not only did you find that, that basically shift workers compared to non-shift workers had a BMI, but those people who did extra work would say or did more hours as the as the hours of work increase, you would you would actually think the opposite would happen that oh we do more work so we're more active would actually probably have less BMI, but you found that they actually had a higher BMI with the more work hours as well. Yeah, and I think that just plays on the um, the fact that it's it's hard to really prepare food or anything like that when when you're working lots and. Like the people in this study, they they do astronomical hours. It really puts me to shame how much some people work and um, the caps for for these kinds of organisation. I think sometimes it's like seventy hours in a week or something. Mm. Like some people can do it's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, especially in fly and fly out. Mine, I don't. Were any of yours fly and fly out, or were they all like residential? They were all residential here in yeah. um in, in New South Wales, so they can all drive to the site. Yeah. So you also found here, which is quite interesting, only three point five percent of participants met the daily recommendation for vegetables having five serves. Yeah. So was there any, did you find out any sort of from talking to people or a thematic approach about why this was, was this because was the food offered at work or did it have to bring their own? Yeah. I think vegetable consumption in Australia is a really interesting one. I have to add the caveat that I think only 9% of adult Australians um, really? or, yeah, yeah. Not many people meet the vegetable guidelines. Wow. Um, so whilst it is shocking that only 3% on a population level, we just don't eat enough vegetables. And I think the, the mean vegetable consumption in Australia is like 2.3 serves or something like that. So um, there's lots of reasons why this might be. Western diet just doesn't, it's just not conducive to eating vegetables. We are more focused on processed grains and meats as opposed to incorporating vegetables. And if you think about it, if you're having a, a cold cereal or or refined grains for breakfast without any vegetables. You've only got really two meals in the day to, to hit your vegetable consumption. So uh, that is a challenge for everyone. And um, the, a lot of that has to do with health literacy about not really knowing what a serve of, of vegetable constitutes. And that's health literacy um, and this kind of approach to behavior change is what we really focus on with a lot of our, um, a lot of our programs about educating individuals about Number one, understanding what a server vegetable is, understanding mm. where you can get the vegetables in your diet and, and, and how you can do this. So, yeah, vegetable consumption is just poor in general, um, compounded by the fact that it's a higher um, male, male uh, population, which is known to have poorer vegetable consumption as well. Yeah, I think this is across the board, actually. Um, in athletes as well, we find that like sleep knowledge and nutrition knowledge is, is quite poor mm. um, and what people think as well. Like, I hate to sound like Trump about fake news, but there is um, there is a lot of shit out there on Google. And a lot of people go, but I read on this or I read this or I read a guy said, if you get this better, you know, and that is one of the problems about trying to sort through the crap on Google and find out what's best. Because um, 
there's so much stuff out there that basically doesn't work. And I, you probably come across it more so in nutrition <laughs> than I do in sleep. Oh, we, we, come, we come across a lot in sleep, but you must yeah. come across even more. Oh, it's, it's unbelievable the amount of clickbaity articles you can, yeah. we'd, we'd start lectures in university just by looking at these, these news stories and just laughing at them and um, yeah. seeing what they had to say. But you're right. There's just so much information out there. It's so confusing uh, for individuals to find high quality information um, and to really understand what they need to be doing to, to eat better. So I think um, it can, the message can be lost and we just try to present it in a way that is easy to understand, is digestible and, and is first and foremost applicable to these individuals. We're not, we're not asking coal miners to have kale smoothies for breakfast. We're just trying to be really realistic and what can be achieved and, and how you can do it. Yeah. Interesting here as well. Uh, and I didn't like this result here, Aaron. It, it, you know, I, I really, I want to, I want to challenge you on this hot chip consumption. One of my favorite things was negatively related with BMI. I'd like you to redo this analysis and make, <laughs> make this a positive correlation, please. That's right. A meal's not complete without chips, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's like a, a comedian in the UK years ago, Peter, Peter Kay is very funny. Probably more funny for Irish and English people, but he, um, they were talking about, you know, people on different diets and he said, uh, about someone being a vegan and he goes that's ridiculous man can't live on chips alone <laughs> being a vegan <laughs> as if chips was the only vegetable you could have <laughs> but yeah this is this is this this was interesting too like as you looked at all these different things like you know sugary drinks and so on but things like hot chip consumption showed a negative correlate a negative relationship with bmi in other words like bmi went up and what's interesting about this is and people we might laugh about this but a friend of mine who who does uh fatigue risk management type education and work in the in the u.s he said, to your point about food literacy, the people will, because when we do fatigue management stuff, we'll often put in some stuff on diet nutrition, but the caveat of like, we're not nutritionists, but you know, you should be increasing fruit and vegetable serves and so on. And how to eat on shift work about snacking and so on. And one guy came up to him who was grossly overweight and said, why do we healthy? And he, I just can't stop gaining weight. So the guy spoke to him for a few minutes. This guy, his idea of eating healthy was I'm having vegetables, which, which was hot chips or fries. I'm having meat, which was like KFC or fried chicken. And I'm having um, salad as well. He was having like a coleslaw covered in mayonnaise. So hot chips, fried chicken, and this coleslaw drowned in mayonnaise and salad cream, whatever else. Mm. And in his mind, that was a healthy meal. Yeah. Yeah. And I I see it as well um, when I used to have clinics and do one-on-one outpatients with um, people who got discharged from hospitals. And I had one particular gentleman who... um, was coming to me for weight loss and we went through his diet history and whatnot and turned out he was having um like a, a like six pack of beer every single night which is you know, nearly a thousand calories uh just in alcohol alone and i you know i said to him oh well we, we you know we might have to address this we'll have to look at this and he goes no no it's, it's fine they're they're low they're low carb beers so that, that makes it okay and i was like Oh, okay. Like, where do we where do we begin here? Um, so you're right. There's these misconceptions around what's healthy and and what's what's standard and normal, I guess. Yeah, and, and I think people like to choose the you know the calories you know of of, of what what counts and what doesn't count. Yeah, that's I remember, like, like I remember one day having a meeting with a guy at work a few years ago. We had a coffee and we were sitting there, and he comes in. And he goes, "Oh, I'm a bit rusty today." He goes, "You know, I had a few too many yesterday." second like Monday morning or something. I was like, yeah. Oh, yeah, whatever. <laughs> so we ordered two coffees and I put a sugar in my coffee and he goes, oh, I can't believe you have coffee, uh, sugar in your coffee. <laughs> and I was like, I don't drink. 
yeah, but sugar's so bad. I said, well, there's lo- <laughs> but, there's, but there's loads of sugar and alcohol. Yeah, but a few beers is all right, or a few wines is all right. Yeah, so yeah. I did his whole tailspin of justifying. Yeah. So he's sitting there hungover after probably consuming thousands of calories. And because I put one sugar in a coffee, I'm the devil walking the street, you know? It's just really interesting, yeah. the, uh, the characterization of it. Yeah, I, I, it's a great, it's a funny thing. Not many people realize how calorically dense alcohol is. It's in terms of the macronutrients in Australia, it's it's right up there with fat in terms of um how much energy it has per gram so you're right yeah. it's almost, it's almost it's almost like double what sugar is or, or carbohydrate so it's it's very yeah. funny isn't it <laughs> yeah i had another guy said to me recently as well he was uh we're doing some trend and afterwards i grabbed a diet ginger beer and um i was drinking it. oh i can't believe you drink soft drinks i'm like man you go and get hammered every friday and saturday <laughs> yeah what's wrong with that i'm like i don't <laughs> Yeah, we gotta have fun. I'm like, okay, right. <laughs> that's my fun. Like, you know, ten calories in this diet ginger beer. So, oh yeah, but aspartame and all that. I'm like, what about alcohol? You know, it's, just, it's it's interesting. Which it's is a, a nice segue. Cognitive dissonance, isn't it? Yeah, cognitive dissonance. Yeah, it's a nice segue actually, Aaron, into this other paper that you've been involved in, um, which is alcohol consumption in the mining industry. Now, this is um, this is something that is actually hit the headlines recently in Western Australia. I don't know if you follow this from over in the eastern states of Australia, but we had a lot of issues here in Western Australia and mining. There was a parliamentary inquiry into, um, and I might be getting the words wrong here, so forgive me guys if I'm getting this wrong, but it was into basically sexual harassment and workplace bullying and, and lots of issues happening, um, and particularly against females. Um, it's quite horrific to watch it, you know, um, to, to see the data coming out and how many people were sacked over it, and obviously there's more going on in that area. But one of the biggest contributing factors to it was actually alcohol. Uh, was called out in it and you know we've got some data here that we can discuss from some other work we've done but um your paper was done in mining but um using similar methodologies that i've used as well using the alcohol use disorders identification test which is the audit tool from the world health organization and you had some interesting data here and nearly 1800 participants which is a phenomenal amount again so absolutely brilliant um, and a response rate at ninety five percent. So that's that's a massive uptick. So that was really good. And this was led by your colleague Carol uh, Carol James, who I, yep. who I don't know, but this was an excellent paper as well. So yeah, can you give us a little bit of an overview on this one here? Yeah. So these were this was a, if I recall correctly, at different sites across Australia. So not just limited to um, New South Wales. Um, and yeah, various sites, fly in, fly out, drive in, drive out, as well as local sites. And these are just um, different cross sections of these sites looking at um, using the audit tool, as you said, to, to capture this alcohol data. This was done over a period of a couple of years um, just to assess things like alcohol and, and workplace factors and see if there was any relationships to, to be had. Yeah, and you found here when you look at the data, it was like um, although, although it was highly skewed towards males again, um, mm. but basically that's the industry. Like that's that's it. That's, yeah, you know, ninety percent. Yeah, I think it was yeah eighty eighty just under eighty eight percent here, yeah. but like ninety percent probably across the board easily. You know, yeah. And the more you get into operations, the more it's like that. Probably more back in the corporate offices, you probably got a bit more yeah um, better ratios, but definitely in operations. But what was really interesting here was actually all that the. Um, the distribution by age um so 63 percent of people under 34 doing harmful drinking and um yeah as it got older it got less actually um but it was really interesting to see how many young people are basically getting blitzed and those who are not married um going crazy as well um and also as well 
this is something we've been collecting as well in other studies too. We haven't really found much relationship, but it, it would look like anecdotally here as well that education level was associated with alcohol behavior as well. Mm. That those people with a university degree about 15% less harmful drinking than those without. Yeah. And I think that speaks again to the, the, the health literacy um, from those who maybe attain higher education um, and how that, that has a flow on effect to, to understanding things like alcohol and nutrition. Yeah. Lots of drug and alcohol problems here, 85%. It's really interesting. I think this kind of plays into this holistic thing. Just to just to tell you, Darren, about some of our data that we've been collecting in, on the fatigue management stuff in mining, which will just kind of tie our two respective fields together. We did a, a study with 88 shift workers in a fly-in, fly-out mine looking at sleep and, and wake behaviors over two weeks. Um, and basically, it was like a baseline paper. And it was the biggest study done to kind of characterize the sleep and wake behaviors of of these shift workers so a week of days and a week of nights so like you mm. said up to seven seven twelve hour shifts so that's 84 hours followed by another 84 hours of night shift and then a week off and with these guys we found again similar data to yourself but high levels of obesity and overweight we found that for every one year increase in age the odds of risk for obstructive sleep apnea increased by six percent and for every unit increase in BMI, the odds of risk for OSA increased by 19%. Mm. So basically, kind of hand in hand with what you're finding as well is in shift workers, as they get bigger, you know, they're basically getting unhealthier, consuming more calories. And we're also finding parallel to that is that they're also more at risk for obstructive sleep apnea. Because mm. obviously, the bigger you are, you know, the, 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 the kind of the fatter the neck gets and the fatter the tongue gets so that yeah. the harder it is to get oxygen in overnight, particularly when you're in a, a supine position lying on your back, Yeah, you know, you're going to be affected from this. So mm. very interesting to see um, similar data emerging on our side from a sleep perspective. But the crossover, if we had a Venn diagram, would be this BMI um, aspect, which is basically, I think at the end of the day, it's just leading to no positive health outcome. Yeah. Yeah. And look, you can speak more on this than me, but in terms of obstructive sleep disorders, is, is obstructive sleep apnea the most prevalent in um, shift, shift workers, at least in the mining industry? or Well, it's the most prevalent in Australia, definitely from the data. Of all, oh, there's okay, over, really? There's, yeah, there's actually over 70 sleep disorders. So we go by yeah. the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. Yeah. There's over 70 recognized sleep disorders. OSA would be the, the highest. Oh, wow. And, and but, but from our work in, in mining, and there's limited, this was the first paper to actually characterize sleep disorders in mining industry. Mm. And it, it's it's pretty high. Um, but yeah, it would be, it probably would be from the limited data would be the highest. Yeah. And we also found a high prevalence of shift work disorder, which is basically like a sleepiness associated with working shift and the inability to, to manage that. But then again, with seven days and seven nights, it's a very long period it's been undertaken shift work. Yeah whereas, yeah. whereas in the Hunter Valley, for example, in mining or over east in residential environments, it, it can be typically like two days, two nights and four off shorter mm. swings or roster cycles. Yeah. It's, um, it's interesting. I don't know if you, like, if you do too much on nutrition when you're doing your, your sleep talks, like I, I dabble in a bit of um, sleep hygiene stuff or yeah. I talk about the, the risk of, um, you know, destructive sleep apnea when we're discussing nutrition, but um I guess what's to be prioritized sleep or, or good nutrition and exercise. I'd, I'd probably argue sleep. <laughs> well, I don't you know I'd argue Aaron. I think actually when you, if you had a holistic framework on the wall of sleep, nutrition, physical activity, and mental health, I actually think it doesn't matter where you start. Once you start somewhere. And I often say to people, here is the wheel, the wheel of doom for you. <laughs> these, all these things like 
but but if we analyze them all and we look at like let's say if we took like sleep and wake behavior like in the work that we do we took nutrition questionnaires like you do if we looked at physical activity as well from wearable trackers or self-reported and and things with mental health history if we took it all we could probably easily when each of those four domains go right sleep is your biggest issue or nutrition is your biggest issue from yeah. that data and then it comes back to the individual approach like we said yeah then you can say to the person this is where you need to focus however if you don't have that data and people are struggling across all of those domains in any shape way or form any improvement or any sorry any intervention in any of those domains is going to make an improvement because if your bmi goes down your risk of sleep apnea goes down if mm. those goes down if those two things go down your sleep quality generally improves as well. Yeah. And actually, we've got a paper under review that we're going to just submit the final revisions today where we looked at um, 24 ultra swimmers okay. that were 39 years of age was the average age. So we're talking about amateur swimmers that swim to Rottnest Island 20 k's away. And so all had jobs, all worked. So we're not talking about elite athletes. We're talking about amateur athletes here. And we found here in this one that BMI was associated with less sleep. So every one unit increase in BMI led to five minutes less sleep. Now that doesn't sound bad, but if you're, uh, you've got a BMI at 23 versus a BMI at 35, that's an hour of sleep. Yeah. It's a lot of sleep. Yeah. That's a lot of sleep. Right. But we also found then as well that the people um, with, uh, with the higher prevalence of OSA also had 21 more minutes awake. So if you're bigger, right, we use that example again, 23 versus 35, yep. you're losing out an hour of sleep straight away for that, from that. Then if you have OSA as well, you're losing out another 21 minutes on average per night as well. So there's like an hour and 20 minutes gone <laughs> of your sleep from oh, the time wow. you're in bed because of these two factors, BMI and, and OSA, which go hand in hand. Yeah, so, and they're, they're more prevalent than people might think as well. Yeah. So if, if we couple that then, Aaron, with people who are working in the mining industry or a shift working industry or anything like that, because um, I know people who do shift work and try to do Ironmans and so on, and, and hats off to them, it's difficult to do. Mm. And they struggle to lose weight or they're, they're, they're losing muscle mass and, and so on. And so when we start combining all of these different factors for the shift worker or for the athlete, depending on what their goal is, we're starting to see this more and more crossover uh, in these domains and it, it, it really can lead to a lot of negative outcomes and it's difficult for people to try and manage all these things because the tide or the wind is against them constantly in a shift work environment yeah it really is an uphill battle so seeing workplaces do some more around that would be really good so so aaron going forward from the work you've done um so far what do you think or what would you suggest if somebody was a workplace leader and was listening to this what would you suggest to them that they might want to think about doing to improve something like this in their business today? I think they, they first need to understand their, their employees. So at least getting some kind of data about where their employees are in terms of their wellness outcomes. Um, I, I think you can't really diagnose a problem without knowing about it. So you yeah. need some data first. And then as you said, look at what what's a priority. Um, is it sleep? Is it nutrition? Is it act, physical activity? Is it burnout or stress or any of these factors and just go from there and you know there's no there's no one size fits all there's no shiny ball to chase after but even just something modest um, in an organization can really get the ball rolling in terms of wellness it's it's never going to be a one-off and it shouldn't be and i think the scoping review really highlighted that um, that sometimes you might do more harm than good if you just give some people a little bit of something and take it away straight away 
So start small and, and get to know your employee base and constantly reevaluate. And what about then, Aaron, what would you say to somebody who is a shift worker and wants to improve their health, but their company or business or their employer is not offering any programs? What would you say to those people? There's lots of resources out there um, to, to look at your own diet and um, understand where you can improve things. Small changes. I, I've seen research around things like um, even just getting 15 to 20 minutes of exercise three times a week can nearly have the same effect as an antidepressant um, on individuals who are suffering from mental disorders. Um, going, getting physically active can help reduce weight, might help improve sleep as well. And, and try to hit your fruit and veggies. Um, <laughs> eat your fruits and vegetables, people. <laughs> yeah, that's good advice. And on that on that topic as well, um, I'm going to have Sean Kane on soon from Monash. Uh, Sean does a lot of research into chronobiology and light space, and he's been doing some work around looking. Um, I think that's sixty thousand people in a big study to look at from a data bank. Oh wow! But basically, early morning sunlight exposure. So when you get up in the morning, let's say half six, seven, half seven, whatever it might be. When you go out to get your coffee in the morning, like leave your sunglasses on and maybe have your coffee sitting outside in your backyard or at the local coffee shop and just allow that early morning sunlight to basically absorb into your eyeballs uh, because that's also been associated with better mental health and better sleep overnight as well. There you go. So yeah, having that sunlight during the day just really helps you early in the morning to regulate your day and get you started. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think even if you can't do that, just getting your windows open during the day as well, open up your blinds, your curtains, and let some natural life flow in. Yeah, absolutely. It's all good stuff. Excellent. Aaron, if people want to follow your work, they want to get in contact with you, they maybe want to give you a million dollar grant to do some oh. work with them. Because uh, loads of people get millions of dollars out of this podcast, I think. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, how can people get in contact with you, follow your work, get your papers, uh, have a chat with you? Yep. So you can just uh, follow me on LinkedIn and just Aaron Bazina. Or uh, you can send me an email, aaron.bazina at newcastle.edu.au. Excellent. Are you on Twitter, Aaron, or any of those other platforms? Uh, not really Twitter. Um, I'm just, yeah, more LinkedIn at the moment, but looking yeah. to expand my socials. It can be a bit of a minefield out there. Yeah, you might want to stay off Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Aaron, thanks very much for your time. Uh, great talking to you. Thanks. No, you too. Thank you. <laughs>